It's your boy, and welcome to episode 72 of the podcast, This Is M, which you can subscribe to on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Everywhere you find good podcasts, you'll find this one. Take a minute, rate and review us, give us five stars, type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast and why others will also, and if you can think of one person in your life who you think would like the show, send them your favorite episode. I'm looking at my notes for the show today because I've been trying to do that. I've said that uh, for a while the the podcast has been a bit of a challenge for me and part of my work during the week is just jotting things down. And uh, <laughs> I've actually thought about this. Normally this is uh, in the, in the uh, description for the podcast in the way I talk about it and the way I think about this. This is a stream of consciousness podcast, so sometimes I wonder if having notes sort of flies in the face of that, but... Um, I don't know, I guess I look at this whole thing as an experiment, and after 100 episodes, or maybe I sh- should even say after, if after 72 episodes, um, well, maybe I should put it this way. <laughs> I think fundamentally I want the thing to be entertaining, and uh, if it being fully stream of consciousness comes to the extent of it being, or at the expense of it being entertaining, then it's time to, to tweak something. So I've tried to take notes. And yet, as I'm looking at my notes now, the first item I have here is the phrase, perdition to conspirators. And uh, I'm not sure what I had to say about that. I know it was a, maybe I just thought it was a cool thing to, to say, or a cool phrase, perdition to conspirators. Um, I've mentioned on other episodes I've been you know considering buying a gun. Actually, th- this Thursday I'm supposed to have an appointment to actually buy a firearm, but... Um, you know, still talking to the girlfriend about it. Um, I want her to feel comfortable with it, and she's definitely still... I would say she's on the fence, but I think she's still squarely on the side of I mean, uh, not buying one. So uh, until she's more comfortable with it, uh, I'm not going to do it. But uh, I've been seeing a lot of YouTube videos on guns, and I just, I, I've been finding the topic kind of interesting. Again, these are the types of crazy things that you get into at some point in your life, and um, if I was a betting man... I, I, at no other point in my life would I have said that I would have had this sort of uh, passing or even active interest in firearms. But um, I think like a lot of things, I think I think podcasts are like this too. Sometimes we find ourselves stumbling on a topic that we really formally didn't give a shit about. Excuse me, but sorry, stifled a burp. Um, I'm drinking water here. I also just had a hot dog. <laughs> it's like if you told me, so maybe two things. If you had told me when I was 35 that I would have a ha- I would have hot dogs for dinner. Um, that would have seemed very juvenile. Uh, I can't remember the last time I had a hot dog, but tonight I did. So anyway, sorry I'm digesting my food as I'm speaking here. But um, I think like podcasts, when you hear someone talking intelligently or in-depth about a topic where they're clearly an expert, it, there's something just intrinsically entertaining about that. Um, my brother recently, I checked in with him. I, he asked me for some recommendations of stuff and... Uh, on another podcast episode, I talked about capturing the Freedmans. And uh, where am I going with that? Oh, I think just <laughs> documentaries were something that you used to have to put people in a chokehold <laughs> and like force them to watch around the, around the 2000s, late 90s. Um, but I think for me, it was always interesting because it was just getting a window into a topic that you would never look into yourself. And especially when it's well done, it's like it's like seeing someone have a, a sort of expert conversation about a topic and, and, and introducing it to you in a very engaging way. And so I'm not pretending that everybody gives a shit about guns. But if you ever, there's a, a channel called Forgotten Weapons on YouTube, which they go, uh, you know, his 
area of interest is old, antique, and just sort of uh, unique firearms, and just talking about their build and talking about the differences differences between um, those firearms and their, um, you know, how they're the precursor of modern firearms and stuff. And so, um, yeah, just interesting. So I don't know. Maybe I'm just trying to say that uh, your boy wants to get a gun, um, and uh, and yet uh, the jury's still out in terms of yield girlfriend. So we'll see what happens to it. Um, oh, but anyway, <laughs> perdition to conspirators. Um, this uh, this uh, channel, Forgotten Weapons, there he he was showing like a fourteen barrel sh- uh, shotgun. Uh, fourteen barrels. Try to picture that. Most shotguns are a single or double barrel. Fourteen barrel shotgun, and someone had engraved on it, "Perdition to conspirators." I thought that's uh. <laughs> Like what? Like I think like in in Vietnam or something, there'd be like uh, on bombers, like people would write like "death from above," like on their missiles or something like that. Perdition of conspirators. That sounds pretty fucking gangster. Um, but anyway, uh, something strange is going on. I don't know if you felt this yourself over the last week, but something about this week, and there's a lot of big changes for me anyway. But there's something in the air. There's something. I've talked about this with other people. I think we had a full moon recently. In fact, anecdotally, I think there was a, a musician, a quasi-famous musician who died recently. She had like climbed up something to watch the full moon and fell and died. Anyway, I, th- I think her name was like Sophie or something like that. Um, but yeah, something weird is going on. Uh, I've had a lot of just sort of exceptional experiences, both uh, with with school, which started recently, but also with work and just kind of in my personal life, just weird encounters with people. And I'm not really sure what to attribute it to. Um, I was just talking about it with my brother, in fact, and I was saying, you know, I feel as this pandemic continues, I sort of feel my attitude is sort of cyclical in that there are periods where I settle into a routine. And then about every three or four months or so, it's all of a sudden things are hard again. And honestly, three or four months might even be generous. It could be more like two or three. But um, it's like all of a sudden I wake up. It's harder to get up in the morning. It's harder to get started, even after I am up. It's harder to focus on things. You know, I have a very limited uh, attention span, usually about like 15 minutes. Is <laughs> I start to feel like my mind starts drifting. I mean, even recently when I read, it's like a lot of times I'm finding very frequently I'll read half a page or a page and I have to go back and reread because my mind was drifting off into thinking about something else, something else that was going on in my life. And that's bound to happen anyway, but it's happening very frequently now. Um, I was in a staff meeting recently for my work, and it was very adversarial. And you could just, you could just tell that like, the mood was very tense. And I, I, I don't normally see people comport themselves that way. Um, part of my work is I do interviews for people who want to volunteer at our agency and I have people canceling last minute. I have people not showing up to their interviews, which feels a little aberrant. That's, that's, I mean, it, inevitably it happens, but uh, I'm having a lot of those experiences are sort of clustering together. We had a very sort of exceptionally busy night at work. You know, I deal with uh, people who are in crisis or uh, people who are needing support. And so that also suggests to me that there's something going on in the community where uh, people are a little, I don't know if dysregulated is the right word, but there's something going on. And I feel it's something that we're kind of all going through collectively. Um, 
you know, someone used a phrase recently, and I, I, I may have used it a couple of times on the podcast. I wish I could um, think of the person who I sourced it from, but someone used this great analogy where they said, we're all sort of, we're all steeped in the same tea right now. You know, this pandemic, uh, um, well, I don't want people to infer too much by this, but it's something of a great equalizer or, um, maybe that's not the right word for it, but it's this common experience that we're all going through together, you know, and there's something about, I would say the twist and turns, uh, going through all these things together. That's very disorienting, but in some ways, my brother used a great analogy. He talked about a, a roller coaster. Like we're all sort of climbing this roller coaster and it keeps sort of ratcheting up and we're waiting for the moment of expectation where it crests and all of a sudden we feel ourselves on the other side of things. And even though there's talk of things like the vaccine, even though there's talk uh, of things sort of moving forward, I know where I live in the Bay Area, you know, we're not at the, what do they call it, um... Uh, stay-at-home order has been lifted. I mean, we're still shelter-in-place. Um, so that's been... Alle- the the uh, uh, stay-at-home order has been lifted. And yet there's no real change in our lives. I mean, I've actually... When I think about what's going on and what's... You know, all of a sudden in this last week or two, things being difficult again... First of all, it's crazy to think that the capital only happened like three or four weeks ago, right? It feels like a year ago, but... It's not like there aren't things happening, and yet the news cycle is so fast that we just sort of forget about this stuff. I mean, I don't know if anyone will give a shit about this a year from now, but the whole GameStop uh, stock thing was, was like on like the talk of the town for the last couple of days. And now that I feel like three days have passed, we're never going to talk about it again. I mean, that's sort of the rate that the news cycle is sort of moving at. Um, you barely even hear about Trump's impeachment anymore, as far as I'm concerned. But um, I wonder... <laughs> This may seem like a strange comparison, but when I was playing shows a lot, when I was sort of solely focused on my music, I would have this common experience where I had a big show coming up, and there's preparation that has that has to uh, that that goes along with that. There's some promotion, there's logistical stuff, there's just getting ready for the show. But you have this, uh, I don't know if inertia is the right word, but you have this reservoir of energy that's sort of building up for this event or this experience. And then usually after it happens, there's this period of depression. And I think part of that is just a natural occurrence. You have this expulsion of energy. There's this sort of period of depletion. There's this, um, you know, I mean, I, 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 feel, I feel it with uh, 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 the Matt Nathanson tour is, is the first thing that stands out to mind. It was a protracted experience, meaning it wasn't just one show. It was a whole sequence of shows. And yet once that was over, there is sort of a lull. There's sort of a recovery process. I mean, I forget who the musician was, but somebody talked about going on tour with U2 when they were sort of coming up. And they could not believe that U2 was still in existence because they went on tour with U2 for like two months and said it took them a year and a half to recover from that experience. You know, not that they understood exactly what was going on at the time, but in hindsight, they look and said that those two months was such a whirlwind of an experience, so much sensory overload that they were sort of depleted afterwards. Um, on a smaller scale, I think that can happen with certain shows, but I also think it can happen with uh, political events. I think many people had a lot of hope and energy staked on Trump leaving office, and whether or not people really thought it consciously or 
um, you know, really truly believed that the world was going to be different. Sometimes I do wonder if some of what we're experiencing is this sort of, there's been a, a shift in power. A lot of great things have happened since Biden's taken office. There's a lot of things that were signed and a lot of initiatives or whatever you want to call them. Um, so there's great work being done. And yet, for the vast majority of people, very little in our lives has changed. Right. Uh, it's not like all of us woke up with new jobs or woke up with more money in their bank account. Although I did get my debit card from the government that had $600 on it. Um, it was very strange. I got it in the mail. I wish I could remember what it was called. Like EIP or EMP. I don't fucking know. But um, um, maybe it's like economic stimulus, ESP. <laughs> Wait, isn't that like when you can read people's brains or what is that? But anyway... Um, I got my debit card in the mail and I thought it was a fraud. I had to like go online and look it up. Um, apparently it's real. There's $600 on it. I haven't tried to spend it yet. Um, there's a part of me that wonders if I should find someone more deserving of it and give it to them. But, um, I think it's fair to say that for most of us, our lives haven't changed that much. Um, you know, I feel like I'm in the same cycle. It's the same shit for me. And I just wonder if some people are kind of dealing with, you know, this sort of prolonged nothing changing. Um, although I will say, I mean, uh, th I guess <laughs> maybe I'm not being fair to myself. There are things that have changed in my life. I started school again this week. Um, thankfully, the first week of school is usually pretty chill. Um, this semester, I'm taking American Sign Language, which my brother is very excited about. He has some ASL uh, in his past, and was very excited for me to take it. I'm taking calculus, <laughs> which is a big fucking bummer. And I'm taking this sort of research methods for psychology, which actually I'm hoping is going to prove pretty interesting. Um, we had one of our first assignments is apparently there's going to be this research, this semester-long research project, and we have to begin to brainstorm or identify a topic. And um, in some ways, I don't know if it's a, I don't know if it's a great thing in that the more I think about it, it actually. Uh, maybe indicates to me that maybe my actual, at least academically, my interest might not be psychology, which is supposed to be my major, but I was working very hard um, to weave religion into it or psychology of religion. And sometimes I wonder, I go, actually, a lot of the stuff I'm really interested in, or if I um, really try to force myself to hone in onto, onto a topic that I might be interested in studying, um, in a very real way, it usually is something sort of philosophical or uh, something like that. So I don't know what I'm supposed to infer from that, but um, yeah, ASL has been interesting too, American Sign Language. Um, you know, with everything going on over Zoom, I, I mean, I've never been great at languages. I mean, I took two semesters of Latin when I was in middle school. I don't remember any of it. I remember some of like the conjugations. Um, we had this very, I don't know if I've talked about my Latin teacher in the past, but, um, really interesting guy, actually. His name was Mr. C. I, I, I shouldn't say his name, so I'll just call him Mr. C, but this guy was such a character. I remember the first day of class, <laughs> I remember the first day of class, he was calling a roll. He was sort of going down the list and he calls my last name, uh, or how do I say it, rather? No, he was, he, every day he would start the class by writing a phrase in Latin on the board. And uh, 
later we would learn that we would translate it, you know, this first day, so none of us know anything. But he's writing this Latin phrase on the board, and I think I'm really fucking clever. I think I'm really fucking smart. And I say, why are we learning Latin? It's a dead language. <laughs> and I'm kind of looking around like, uh, you know, some people are chuckling or whatever. And all of a sudden, he's in mid-type. He's in mid-sentence on the board. And all of a sudden, his hand just starts squiggling in this very melodramatic way down the, uh, it was like a dry erase board. And all of a sudden, he slowly turns as he's doing the squiggly thing with the pen. And he looks at me. And he's got this fucking grimace on his face. This sort of comic grimace on his face. And he's got these like crooked two front teeth. And they're kind of like espresso stained. And all of a sudden he just sort of snaps up, caps the marker, and says, You, freak, name. And I give him my first name. And he goes, No freak, last name. And I give him my last name. And he snatches up the roll. And he just starts dragging his finger down that thing. And he goes, Ah! And he repeats my last name. And he goes, you, he's like, zero, he's like, like, I'm getting a zero for the day, he marks it down in the book, he's like, you freak out. And I'm like, he's like, out. So he's kicking me out of class, I guess. So, I grab my stuff, I start walking toward the door, and he goes, no freak, window. And he points to the window on the other side of the room. And I'm sort of like, looking at him incredulously, and he's just like, give me this look, like, go out the window. And I was like, oh shit. So I literally had to crawl out the window on my first day of class. Thankfully, it was on the first story, right? He's not going to send me uh, plummeting to my death. But I, I actually had to open the window, step out, and then like <laughs> awkwardly drag my other leg out the window. And uh, that was Latin. Uh, I had two years of that class. Um, actually, I sort of look back on that class, and it actually was pretty formative for me. I wish I remembered the language more. I wish I had actually learned more. But that was like my first introduction to like classic literature and the Iliad and Homer and the Odyssey. And so later in life, when I was actually reading those things for the first time, it just went to show me like, oh, wow, I had this really interesting sort of formative point of contact with a subject that I actually think is really interesting. I wish I would have spent more time or uh, paid more attention in that class so that, I don't know, it would, have, it would have served me better. I guess Latin is one of those things, especially when you're younger, you think, why the fuck do I have to learn this? I mean, I feel like now with my calculus class, why the fuck do I have to learn calculus? Who gives a shit? I'm never going to use it. And yet, maybe, perhaps, lo and behold, in the future, I'll be very happy that I did have that, uh, that I did uh, study that topic. But where am I going with this? Oh, I guess I'm talking about languages. My only other experience with a language was I... When I was, you know, I mentioned years ago, I was languishing in a junior college in Arizona. When I moved out to the Bay Area, there was, after about a year and a half, I think I'd been sort of working at this bar doing nothing. Um, and I think I started dating someone. And I, and I guess I sort of always thought that part of getting my life back together or getting back on track was going to be going back to school. Um, and so there was a period where I was like, oh, I'm just going to go back to school. And so there was this, it also goes to show you how stupid I was, because here I am, I was living in Berkeley at the time, which is a city in the Bay Area. And for some reason, I enrolled in this junior college called Diablo Valley College, which was like a, you know, on, with traffic, it was like a 40 minute drive away. You have to go through the Caldecott, it's called the Caldecott Tunnel, which is like north of Berkeley. And you have to drive down the freeway for like, you know, 25, 30 minutes without traffic just to get to this junior college. There's a junior college in Berkeley called Berkeley City College. Why the fuck didn't I go there? I have no fucking idea. 
I think I just like did a cursory search for community colleges in the Bay Area and that came up and so I just decided I was going to go there. I did no fucking research into the topic. You can tell I didn't give it a lot of thought. But anyway, I went there. I enrolled in like four classes, I think. One was primate adaptation and evolution, which was taught by someone who, you know, I'm not, I guess this is not good, uh, I don't know the word for it, uh, I don't want to speak disparagingly about people who live with mental illnesses, but the the woman was unhinged, right? Um, and uh, I took uh, Italian from this guy, very nice guy, very uh, endearing gentleman, um, but I never even finished that semester. That was like my attempt to go back to community college, and it was everything that I feared it was. You know, I struggled to get the class, I, I struggled doing the homework, I was not performing well, and eventually I just said, fuck it. I got like three quarters of the way through the semester and just said, fuck it, I stopped going. Um, that's sort of the self-deprecating way to put it. The truth is I was just like not doing well. In my, actually, ironically, I was not doing well in my own mental health. Um, I was depressed at the time. I was struggling with, <laughs> you know, these gastrointestinal issues as a consequence of my anxiety. And uh, the reason I was struggling to even get to class was it was such a production for me to like leave my place every day you know there was so much uh, psychic energy being spent on like being away from home um just sort of getting through the day comfortably uh that I just sort of shied away from it and some days it was just like too much stress and so I didn't do it but um but yeah so (laughs) I guess when I when I sort of reflect on those things I think you know to see myself going to uh, you know, being back at school now and, and performing as well as I'm doing is, you know, for me, kind of a, a big personal accomplishment. But I'm taking ASL, and uh, it's actually been really interesting. Um, it's conducted over Zoom. Our teacher is 100% deaf, and for the first two classes that we've had, one was just sort of, you know, kind of ideally how you want your first class to be. You just kind of go over the syllabus, uh, kind of meet and greet each other, and then you get dismissed early. So that was awesome. Second class was a little more long. We didn't even use the full time again, but we got together. Roll takes like 30 minutes in this class, which is strange. But the teacher's 100% deaf. There's two interpreters, one for the one to interpret what the teacher is saying to the class, and then a second interpreter, excuse me, to communicate what the class is saying to the teacher. And on the second day of class, we did this really interesting exercise. I almost wanted to bring it here and do it. Um, I'm not sure if there's like, I don't know, there's copyright laws against doing that. Um, I don't know, like, like proprietary, I don't fucking know for like using this, the school material and using it here. But she gave us this quiz on deaf culture and our understanding of deaf culture. And, you know, it wasn't too, it wasn't graded. It wasn't something that we're expected to know. It's the type of exercise where you answer these questions and, you know, as we go over the answers as a class and you realize how many of them you got wrong, it's supposed to be a consciousness-raising experience for people like, you know, uh, certainly listening to this podcast, you know, hearing culture, um, interacting with deaf culture. The one that really stood out to me, I still haven't wrapped my mind around, is there was this one, one question, which is, you know, when you come across two deaf people signing and having a conversation in your path... What should you do? Should you walk around them? Should you walk through them? Uh, should you tap them on the shoulder and tell them, excuse me? Or uh, did I say walk through them? Uh, and the other one was, uh, the last one was like, find a new path or something like that. I think like 95% of the class chose find a new path. And as we're going over the answers, you know, raise your hand if you chose A, raise your hand if you chose B. Nearly the entire class raises their hand for this last one, find a new path. 
And the teacher was like, oh, that is so hearing culture. You guys are so polite. Um, no, you should walk through them. And I was like, wait, why? I wouldn't walk through two people who were, who were regularly speaking. Um, why would I walk through two people who are assigning? You know, is it one of those things where, you know, people don't want preferential treatment or they don't want to be tiptoed around? I'm not sure. But, uh, you know, that was, you know, one of the few kind of counterintuitive examples that I think, well, maybe with more context, I'd understand. But um, at the same time, though, our teacher did take time at the end of this sort of, you know, uh, deaf culture quiz to talk about her experience. And some of it's laughable, some of it's like, not not uh, her, obviously, but the types of interactions she had. I mean, people just never see, I don't know why people amaze me. You know, they, they shouldn't. Um, and it's also kind of tragic, too, but uh, she's been deaf her whole life. And she tells this story the first time she flew on a plane uh, by herself without her parents. She sort of has this layover in some city, and she's trying to locate her next flight. And so she goes to the gate that she thinks she's supposed to be at, and there's a flight attendant there, and she asks her uh, if she's at the right, right gate. And the flight attendant says, one second, picks up the phone, and begins talking with someone. And she sort of waits patiently for a moment. She's also recognizing that she's really kind of up against it for time. She needs to get to her next flight. So she sort of signals to her and gestures, you know, communicates to her somehow. You know, I'm really sorry, but I'm like really concerned about the time. And the flight attendant says, wait, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. One second, one minute. So she waits and she tries a couple more times to say, hey, look, I, I really need to know if I'm in the right place. And the, the flight attendant keeps saying, hold on, hold on, one minute. And then all of a sudden a wheelchair arrives and the flight attendant gestures like, oh, here's your wheelchair. And of course, as the young woman is incensed. She's like, I don't need a fucking wheelchair. I need to know if I'm at the right gate. So there was this whole thing where, you know, they complained to the management. She got like some free flights out of it, but it's just one of those things where it's, it's sort of bizarre. You just wonder what's going through other people's minds. You know, I, 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 I don't, there's a part of it that doesn't want to be too critical. Cause I think, you know, uh, it's probably going to be my turn someday where I do something that is, I'm being, you know, it could be cultural, culturally insensitive. It could be ableist, but I don't know. Maybe the, maybe the, maybe those are the types of experiences that we have to have before we learn. The, uh, the the sad part is that it comes at the expense of someone else's feelings. Um, but for most of us, these are uh, exceptional situations that we're just not accustomed to, right? Um, the second one that I thought was really exceptional was, well, I guess another one about flying. She told this other anecdote about being on a plane. And uh, needing a menu, you know, I think the flight attendant, you know, asked her if she wanted to order some food. And she sort of makes this gesture like she needs a menu. You know, she sort of makes a rectangle with her fingers or opens her hand like a book or something like, I need a menu. So the flight attendant comes back with a Braille menu. And she's like, I can't read this. I'm not blind. <laughs> I'm deaf. I, I don't know Braille. And the flight attendant was fucking mortified. <clears throat> the one that was really interesting to me, and I guess it sort of brought up another issue, which I, I, I feel I have feelings about, but I also feel undecided. So maybe I need someone to sort of uh, teach me about this one. But she was going, she says going through the drive-thru is exceptionally difficult for her. You know, it's, a, it's sort of a nightmare experience for her every time. Because, uh, you know, she can't order uh, from the telecom or whatever you want to call it. 
So she always has to wait until she gets to the, the first window, and she'll either have her order written down or on her smartphone in like the, the notes of her smartphone and, and hand it to the person. She said years ago she was eight months pregnant. All she wanted was Taco Bell. She goes to Taco Bell, pulls it to the first window, and basically shows the person her phone and says, this, you know, this is my order. And the person said, uh-uh, uh-uh, you have to come inside. And she was like, no, I'm not going to come inside and order. This is my order. You can just take it here. This is what I want. And the person was adamant, no, no, you have to come inside and order. And she was like, no. And the person got really upset and said, look, you need to come inside. You need to, you're holding up my line or I'm going to call the police. And so she shut her, she just shuts her car off and takes a stand. And it's like, look, you're going to take my order or I'm just going to stay here. The person ends up calling the police which is insane. And the police officer, he's trying to mediate the situation. He makes the error of trying to escort her inside. And she says, no, <laughs> you don't understand. It's not about me getting my food. I don't need someone to mediate the conversation. I need this person to understand that they're, you know, they're imposing uh, an unnecessary uh, inconvenience on me. They're, they can just take my order. There's no need for me to order inside. I want to be treated like everybody else. Um... I guess what came up after that is we were in class and some, and I've had a couple instances like this recently where, um, I don't know if I necessarily disagree with the statement as much as I, it just seems quasi inappropriate, but in the chat, this other classmate writes ACAB, ACAB. I don't know if that's a, th that's something that we see in the Bay Area. I'm not sure if that's in other parts of the country, but the interpreter who's needing to interpret from the class to the, um, to the teacher goes, someone typed in the chat, A-C-A-B, I'm, I'm not sure what does that mean. Well, what does that mean? And ask the person, what does that mean? And she clarified in the chat, she says, all cops are bastards. <laughs> and I was like, that's a bizarre statement. I, I know it's one of those things that it sounds awful when you say this, like I'm, I'm just supposed to say that. It's kind of like defund the police, you're just supposed to sm smile and nod at this stuff. Um, part of being uh, pro-social justice or being socially aware is kind of hate the cops. Um, and so I guess I feel weird saying that it struck me strange because I certainly don't want to, um, diminish the horrible things that police frequently do. Um, I'm even willing to say that a majority of police are probably not people I'd like to hang out with in my social lives or, you know, maybe in some ways they inadvertently support a system that might be fundamentally unjust and cruel. And yet there's something about that statement that I just thought, <laughs> it just, one, that's not true, right? It's just not true that all cops are bastards. It can't be true. Um... It's just weird for people who are, they usually, uh, I would say they're pretty self-satisfied in terms of their level of discernment and intelligence um, to just sort of get get behind that kind of a blanket statement. But um, it was a very strange moment in the class. Um, uh, but yes, this teacher's story about their experience as a deaf person was was pretty eye-opening. So anyway, I'm hoping that as I take more classes as I, as I move through the semester that... Um, I learn a lot, and, uh, you know, I mean, in some ways, I'm, already, I'm already getting more insight into people I've known in my life who are deaf. Um, I've mentioned that I live, excuse me, I get some more water. <clears throat> I mentioned that I live in a cottage in the backyard of someone's house, and the homeowner, um, she has a couple daughters. One of her daughters is deaf. Um, and they lived here for a couple of years, or they lived uh, in the front house. I, I was there. I lived in their backyard for a couple of years. And uh, funny enough, <laughs> they were the loudest people I ever lived with. 
meaning that there's been a few people who have lived in that house and they were the loudest by far. Um, but it just, it's, it, I don't know, just so far, just taking this dev culture class really sort of taught me a lot. Like, um, you know, there was one question on this deaf culture quiz that was like, how, what percentage of deaf people marry someone who's deaf? And I thought like 10%, 15%, 90% of people who are deaf marry someone who's deaf. And it's this idea of deaf culture, someone who has a shared experience, they understand deaf culture. And, and really, because they're sort of othered by society, they tend to group together, they have this sort of shared experience, they know how to navigate the world together. And um, otherwise, they're pretty ostracized. So anyway, consciousness raising class. Hopefully, hopefully, I'll learn a lot. Um, it'll probably be a topic of conversation on the podcast, whether you like it or not. The things I learn, um, but uh, it's something I'm excited about, and so I hope to share it with you. Uh, otherwise, my girlfriend's back. My girlfriend flew in uh, last Wednesday. Uh, tonight's Sunday, so she's been back for five days. Honestly, I haven't seen that much of her. She's still, you know, maybe. Uh, well, I don't know if I want to say what she does. <laughs> I was going to talk about her job. I'll just say because of her job, she's very uh, concerned. I'll just say she's very uh, considerate about other people and their health. And, uh, you know, so anyway, it's for her, it's a big responsibility. She definitely doesn't want to get people COVID that she's flown. You know, she's been on a plane. She's exposed herself. She did something, you know, she was... Uh, 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 She's traveling, and that is a sort of high-risk kind of behavior. That's how most of us see it now. So she wants to do the right thing in quarantine. So I spent some time with her, not a lot. Uh, I did do some grocery shopping for her. I did two things for her yesterday. I took her to get a COVID test, which actually, I, I, I've ne I haven't been tested for COVID myself. I've taken her to get a couple tests. Um, they got that shit figured out, man. The first time we went, it was kind of a clusterfuck. Nobody really know what they were doing. The second time it was a little bit better, and thankfully they weren't as aggressive. I don't know if if you got tested around the time the whole thing this first started. It's like that. It would be like that scene in Total Recall where Arnold Schwarzenegger has to stick that gun up his nostril and pull the tracker out of his nose. That's like the size of a golf ball. I mean, one of the biggest deterrents from people getting COVID and COVID tests in the beginning was how painful they were supposed to be. Well, now they seem to have it figured out, so it's not that painful. But I took her to get a COVID test, and I uh, the second thing we did was I had to I had to not take her grocery shopping. I had to do her grocery shopping for her, which was strange. I had two encounters at the grocery store. One is getting cut off by this guy in traffic. <clears throat> I bring it up because it's interesting for me, which is uh, you'll never be able to picture this. But just imagine this. I'm stopped in the road trying to turn left into the grocery store. I'm waiting for oncoming traffic to, to pass me by. To my right, there is a parked car. It is parked up against the sidewalk. You know, it is parallel parked against the sidewalk. To my right, out of nowhere, once oncoming traffic to my right, and I'm, I'm about to go. Oncoming traffic to my right clears. I'm about to turn left. This person from my right turns in front of my vehicle <laughs> and into the parking lot. So he cuts across the lane of traffic between me and him and then myself and the oncoming traffic lane and just turns into the parking lot where I park. And so I give the guy a honk because what the fuck? And of course, one of the worst things that you, you definitely don't want to have this happen is where I park. They basically park like facing me like one lane over. And now I don't really give a shit. I'm not very, uh, uh, I don't want to say conflict averse. I'm just, that, that stuff doesn't bother me. 
you know, especially when I know I'm in the moral right. I'm fine. If someone wants to come up and talk shit or someone wants to confront me about something, I, I'm, I'm fine with having a conversation about it. But uh, I don't see the guy for some reason. Eventually, when I came out, my girlfriend said, oh, that guy came up to the car. And I said, oh, that must have been fucking terrifying for you. And he said, actually, yeah, he came up to apologize. And I was like, God damn, that's so cool. Like, I don't want to say it really would have weighed on me, but it's like, how cool is it that the guy does something totally shitty, and, you know, maybe at first he was kind of pissed off, or maybe he didn't like me honking at him, but I just fucking thought it was so cool that the guy probably sat there for a minute and said, you know what, I'm going to feel better about it if I just go up and apologize. And in a way, maybe it was also because I was gone. I left my girlfriend in in the car and I did the grocery shopping myself. Maybe he waited for me to leave or saw that. Who knows what it was, but he came up and knocked on the window apparently. And my girlfriend was a little weirded out and she just sort of rolled the window down and he goes, Hey, I just want to apologize to, uh, I think, I think he, I think he called me her husband or whatever, but he just apologized for cutting us off. And I was like, that's fucking rad that he did that. That's super cool. So, hey, boy, if you cut me off in traffic and you apologize, that's fucking rad. You can, you can, shitty things like that can happen. You have to own it, though. That's the fucking thing. If you do something shitty, you have to know you did something shitty. And you got to be willing to fucking say you're sorry. So that was really cool. <clears throat> what was the second thing? Oh, I guess there was, yeah. So grocery shopping, I actually ended early. My girlfriend, like, gave me her shopping list. So I'm going by getting her all her shit. And then once I have everything from her list in the shopping cart, although I'm sorry, boo, I forgot your chili powder. But once I have all the shit from her list in my cart, I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to get some stuff for myself. And as I'm going through the aisles, I'm kind of grabbing a couple things. I see someone that I know, some music, someone from the music community who I, I know very well, a person I'm normally totally cool with walking up to and saying hi. There was something in that moment where I thought, oh, fuck. I did not want to see someone I knew because what I don't want to do is have the typical conversation that you have with people during the pandemic now. You know, I don't want to walk up to them and say, oh, hey, so-and-so, and then they kind of don't know who I am, and I, you know, sort of tilt my mask down a little bit. And then they say, hey, what's going on? And I say, oh, not much, just dealing with the new normal, you know? <laughs> oh, oh, just all the crazy shit going on. I just didn't want to have a fucking pandemic. I didn't want to have our pandemic pleasantries. I didn't want to exchange pandemic pleasantries. You know that's probably going to be the title of the episode now. Uh, I didn't want to exchange pandemic pleasantries. And so I was like, uh, I'm going to get the fuck out of here. And I just like turned around. I, 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 even as I was doing it, I knew it was fucking stupid. Like, why not just get the shit you need and get the fuck out of here? I knew I was probably going to have to do grocery shopping at another later date, but I was so adamant I didn't want to have that confrontation or conversation. I didn't want to keep going down aisles worrying that I was going to bump into this person that I just fucking left. So, I'm crazy, but that's what I did. So I leave, I tell my girlfriend that she has a nice laugh about it. But the fucking, dude, the craziest thing that happened when I was in the grocery store is I'm going down the fucking baked bean aisle looking for black beans from my boo bear, and... I get a phone call, and it's my neighbor, and he goes, uh, hey man, did you happen to find a cell phone today? And I was like, no. And he goes, because there's a girl knocking on our front door saying that they're, they lost their phone, and their GPS traced it to our backyard, which is where my unit is. And I was like, well, that's fucking crazy. And the person was pretty adamant about getting back there. And my neighbor really had to hold the fort and say, uh, well, I'm not just going to, like, let you back there. I'm not going to let you look around. So they had to, like, look at, you know, I think they, like, went across the street or asked the people on, on, the, on the, you know, 
uh, on the uh, the, ne- the next street over at the adjacent street to see if I might be over there. Talk to our other neighbors. So I don't. I guess they must have fucking found it or gave up or whatever. But I thought uh, that was pretty fucking weird. They were pretty adamant about it, and I thought, I don't know. One, it takes a lot of courage, right? Like I've heard other stories. I heard. I know someone who had a bike stolen one time. Who uh, I, I guess they must have had like a GPS thing on it or something, but they tell this story that they basically not they you know they sort of trace it to someone's backyard, they could sort of see through the fence and saw their bike there, knocked on the person's door and told them, and uh, they opened up the back gate and they walked in and just grabbed their bike and left and I thought that takes a lot of courage, you know I don't know if I'd have the confidence necessarily to. Um, just knock on somebody's door and accuse them of stealing my stuff. Although, shit, man, as I'm telling this story, I completely fucking forgot about this. But years ago, years ago, let's say, probably, man, maybe even eight years ago, something like that, I had this old Mac MacBook. I don't know if they called it a MacBook at the time. Um, but it was like a Apple laptop computer. Uh, sort of a tiny 13-inch one. It was all white. And I had it in my backpack. And we were sort of out and about with my friends, and we were sort of drinking or whatever. And I remember we were on this patio of this restaurant, and uh, we must have left to go to another bar, and I completely forgot that I left my backpack right there. Now, this restaurant was just steps away from this very famous park in Berkeley again. It's called People's Park in Berkeley, California. Very famous location for this, just where a lot of homeless people live. And there's just a lot of drug use around that area. And so uh, I had left it there, of course, Within five minutes, the thing was gone. We, I think we got like half a block away, and I said, oh, shit, I forgot my backpack. I walked back. It was gone. So my uh, laptop was inside that backpack, gone forever. Never thought about it. And then about uh, maybe a couple years ago, in the, in, the, in the pretty recent past, I had someone send me a message on Facebook, a sort of, uh, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm imagining like a teenage-aged uh, female or something like that. Someone sends me a message on Facebook and says, hey, I have your MacBook. Uh, I've known it's yours. Uh, I've had it for a long time now. And it keeps uh, sending me a notification that it needs to get updated. Would you be willing to send me your password so that I can update the software? Let that sink in for a second. Because you may have thought, oh, there must be a component of the story that I'm missing. Someone sent me a message on Facebook letting me know that they were in possession of my laptop that was stolen years ago, have had it for a while, and they keep getting a notification that the software, the operating system, needs to be updated. But they can't do it without my password, so they took the time, because apparently, you know, it probably says my name, you know, so-and-so's iMac or so-and-so's laptop, so-and-so's MacBook. They found me on Facebook, sent me a message, and asked me for the password. And so I responded and said, "Uh, I won't give you the password, but thanks for letting me know that you're in possession of my stolen property. Why don't you and I negotiate a way for you to return that to me, or I call the police? Now, they deleted their Facebook profile. I did call the police department and ask, hey, I got this message. I had a screenshot of it, too. I have this person's... Me- is there any way that you could help me like identify this person, or can I file a police report? And they told me no. I was thinking... I was like, that can't be true. I don't know how that can be true. I don't know how the police can just tell you that you can't file a police report for stolen property. Maybe you file a report and nothing happens to it, but I don't know. I'm no expert. Uh, I just chalked it up to experience, right? The thing's been gone for X number of years. I don't want to pursue it anymore. I've never had my identity stolen. I've never, you know, there was nothing uh, sensitive on there. 
Um, so uh, no harm, no foul. But uh, I just thought, wow, it takes a lot of balls to just knock on somebody's door and say, hey, I think you might have my shit. Because <clears throat> you, don't, you don't know what you're walking into. What if I just snatch you and, and steal you also? I have the, fir- I have the phone and, and its owner now. Awesome. Anyway. I'm sorry as shit, man. Oh. Super sore. I swear, I, you know, I told myself this here, my, early, I don't know if I have any other New Year's resolutions, honestly, but I told myself that I was going to be more active. And uh, so far, I haven't done shit about it. But yesterday, I had to groom. I mean, I had sort of shaved my head like a week ago, but it was time to... <laughs> I had this thing with my facial hair is when I'm looking, because just because I see my reflection head on, even when my facial hair grows out, I think, oh, it looks fine. But I do notice this thing when when it gets too long, I sort of, I'll catch my profile or something and I'll see, I call it duck butt. There's just the side whiskers sort of grow out and I, you know, I can't really describe it in a way that you'll um, picture it right. But it's just, it's sort of, I call it duck butting. It just like, it looks like a duck's butt on the side of my face. And so I say, ah, oh, shit, man, I got to trim it up. So I'm trimming it up. And uh, I don't know. I don't like hearing myself talk about myself this way, but it's just the truth. I was like grooming and I had my shirt off. And I was just, I had a moment of like being repulsed <laughs> at my own physique, you know? Like uh, I've gained like 20 pounds during the pandemic. I was already gaining weight like the years before that. And then I gained like another 20 pounds during the pandemic. And it's like, I just had a moment of like disgust with myself. And so some people don't like to hear that. And I don't even like hearing myself talk about it that way. But that's like, for me, that's like motivating. (laughs) You know, I mean, I remember one time when I was younger, I forget what it was. But someone like just commented on my weight and my physicality, like, oh, like I was I was chubby or I needed to like lose weight or something. I was on an elliptical machine the next day. I mean, I actually I, I was thinking about this. I remember on a recent episode, I was talking about running. I was talking about when I got into running. Oh, I was talking about the time that I ran a, a, a half marathon for the first time. And I think when I talked about it, and I think I still think about it this way, as if that way I had never like really worked out before. Like I think the way I had framed that in my mind is like, I just decided I was going to run a half marathon and started training for it. And that was the first physical exercise I'd ever really done. And I think that's, that's partly true. But I also forget that years before that, I was working at a racket club that had a gym. And I would go there and use the elliptical machine all the time. Now, that was the first time I really started working out consistently. You know? Um, and why, why, that was important to me because it just sort of reminds me that I forget stuff. You know, it's like wherever I'm at in my life... Even today, and I know I didn't finish my story. The point, I'll just say this. I saw myself, I saw my physique in the mirror yesterday, and I was kind of disgusted with myself. So I've been working out. Like, I did this, like, 30-minute, like, workout on YouTube. I I just, like, looked up, like, at-home pandemic workout, whatever. And so I did this 30-minute thing. I thought it was going to be super easy because, you know, this is totally me being superficial. But uh, the person leading it was in phenomenal shape. But they had other people like in the background doing it with them who were not in great shape. And I thought, oh, well, I could totally knock this out of the park. I'm not in the best shape of my life, but I think I'm in better shape than these people. Dude, it was hard as shit. I was sweating. I was, dude, I, it was a really good workout for like 30 minutes. Maybe I'm just super out of shape, but dude, it sort of kicked my ass for 30 minutes. I did that and I did another one this morning and I'm going to do another one. Uh, I'm basically, I'm telling myself I'm going to do it twice a day. So we'll see. Um... But where, where am I going with this? 
I'll look up and see myself in some period of my life, and right now it's not active, and I'm trying to get into being active again, and it's like I always forget that I've done this before. You know, I think I've talked about this when it comes to performances, too. Like, if I don't... Every time I play a show, it would be like... I would forget that I've done this literally hundreds of times. And I'm not supposed to be saying literally. But I literally forget that I've done it hundreds of times. And I have all this anxiety of like, oh, it's not going to go well. It's like, this is what you do. You know, there's a part of me that just doesn't retain the good stuff. It's very hard for me to build on past successes. I think part of that is self-talk. You know, one thing, I'm actually glad we're talking about this. One of the things that, you know, as I'm watching this sort of workout video, what I really liked about it is when I felt really stupid, (laughs) you know, like I remember, I remember saying I watched this movie recently called Safe, which is incredible if you haven't seen it with Julianne Moore. It's from like 95, 96, something like that. She plays a, um, uh, a housewife in the San Fernando Valley in like the mid eighties, sort of affluent, no problems. Uh, starts to believe she has all these environmental sensitive, uh, environmental sensitivities and allergies, and her health starts to suffer as a consequence. But it shows her at this like uh, very prototypical eighties aerobics class, and so I'm kind of doing that shit with this YouTube video yesterday. So I feel fucking stupid. It is kind of emasculating, you know, and I'm sort of doing it. But the guy who's leading the thing is like his, I just love his attitude. He's like, you know, maybe it sounds kind of cheesy, but it's like, you know, we're not going for perfection. We're going for progress and you're fucking doing great. And like, it was like being led by Richard Simmons or something like that. But I like felt like really good about it. I was like, oh, this is the way I need to talk to myself. Like, this is how, you know, like, who's the dude? David Goggins is this person who's known for like being a motivational uh, you know, I don't know what you call him, but he does these crazy long super marathons and he used to be overweight and his whole thing is, is like, when I run, I tell myself I'm not a bitch, you know? <laughs> and like, fuck you, you know? And like, you, you fucking suck and be better. And I'm like, there's a whole, you know, there's just a whole uh, group of people who sort of talk to themselves that way. They think they need to be their own drill sergeant. And that's how I default to myself. I talk shit to myself all the time because I think it's motivating me. You know, I'm hard on myself because I think that's what I need to be my own drill sergeant because if nobody else, if if nobody beats, or if I don't beat myself up, nobody else is going to do it, right? I need to be hard on myself. If I'm easy on myself, that's when I'm weak. And as I've gotten older, I just feel like that's not true. I think I've actually accomplished things in spite of being that way to myself, right? And the times where I can actually give it up to myself or be kind to myself, um, that's really where progress comes from. And maybe another way to look at it is sometimes being very hard on yourself can be motivating in the moment, but it's very difficult to be consistent, to apply consistent action when that is your self-talk. I think like alcoholics, you know, there's this idea of like a moment of clarity. I think really it's like a moment of disgust. You know, and maybe maybe that's just part of the clarity. I mean, people see what their lives have actually become and they're disgusted by it. So that the clarity is seeing it for what it really is, seeing reality and being disgusted by it. Um, those are like pivotal moments, right? Shame and disgust. Those are powerful, transformative motivators in the moment, right? So I, I don't want to discount those. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I guess... Um, that's something that it doesn't feel very uh 
doesn't feel very uh, kind for many people, but I, I do think that they're powerful motivators. But that is going to be a very difficult thing to draw on for long periods of time, right? To have consistent action about something. And so I think as I've gotten older, I've just tried to be kinder to myself. And so even though in that moment of seeing myself shirtless in front of the mirror, I was relatively disgusted and like wanted to change, you know, uh, in the actual uh, application of that in terms of being active or working out or doing a workout routine, uh, you have to be kind to yourself, you know, because if it's always hard, if, if in that, in the actual doing of it, you're, you're mean to yourself or hard to yourself, it's just going to be hard to feel enthusiastic about returning to that place, right? Whereas... You know, if that space, if working out, uh, which is already going to be challenging, right? The feet itself, if you're doing it right, is going to be challenging enough. You don't need to um, compound the difficulty by being a dick to yourself. It's going to be hard when you are sore from the day before or when you're struggling to return to it if the entire emotional experience is awful. Maybe a better way to think about it is let the activity be difficult and have the emotional component be good and encouraging and accommodating and don't be too hard on yourself because then you can get like I, I and actually maybe addiction is a good comparison because I think about people who you know like people who try to take a diet or something they break it a little bit and they just say fuck it and then they just go off into the deep end drugs are this way you know people uh you know they have all this sobriety they have all this time and then they have one drink or they have one relapse and they just say fuck it and that's actually when most addicts die is on a relapse because they just say fuck it and go whole hog the other direction but maybe if it was more if it wasn't all or nothing right because if your self-talk even when you're doing well is like you suck you're a piece of shit you suck like you need to be better you need to be better when you actually do fail which is inevitable nobody can be perfect all the time, that will validate every negative thing you've ever thought and said about yourself and try to convince yourself of. You know, if the only time that you see yourself as not your worst self is when you're doing the thing that's very hard to do, I confused my fucking self when I said that. Let me, let me try that again. If the only time you're not your worst self is when you're doing the thing that's already very hard to do. When you... Ah, you fucking know what I'm saying. Oh, who gives a shit? <laughs> who gives a shit? <laughs> who gives a fuck? I'm not even going to try to say it anymore. <clears throat> I actually had a good laugh with my brother today. I was... Uh, do you know the meme where it's the dude? He sounds like he's uh, from some country in Africa, but he's doing the whole... In the Benin... In the Beninning... In the beginning, in the beginning, he's trying to like it's uh, the way it's sort of presented now. It's a guy reading from the Bible, and the first sentence of the Bible is, you know, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, or something like that, or in the beginning there was the void, <laughs> or in the beginning there was the a darkness, and the the face was on the waters of the deep, or some shit like that. But this guy is sort of st he's stumbling over the first sentence. He's just like in the be in the beginning, in in the be in the beginning. <laughs> Turns out it's fake. But it's still a very funny audio clip. Um, that's anyway. That's that's that that that's how I feel right now. Oh man, what a shitty podcast. Um, what else is going on? Uh, reading a lot. Uh, I finished. I think I don't even remember the last time I talked about what I was reading. Um, 
I, I finished The Shining recently, which is pretty good. Again, Stephen King is always best kind of before the monsters show up. Um, I remember not liking The Shining a great deal when I read it as a kid. I think I was like 13 or 14 when I read it. And, uh, yeah, it's okay. You know, it's, it's not, it's not great. It's, uh, I don't know. It's a little too ponderous, maybe. Um, I don't think the, the horror is not very convincing. Um, you know, the whole woman in, I think, uh, is it 217 in the book also, or is that just in the movie? Anyway, there's like, you know, the famous hotel room that, that uh, young Danny is supposed to stay out of. Um, that sequence is pretty cool. The sort of, the whole lady in the tub sequence. Actually, as I was reading this book, and I was actually kind of, I was kind of spooked out by that scene where, you know, Danny sort of goes into the, the forbidden hotel room and he finds the woman in the tub. It reminded me, and I don't know if I've talked about this on other episodes, but in my mind, I have like a, a, a canon of, uh, the most terrifying monsters in film. I actually wrote a song where I used it as a, a metaphor in a song that I wrote years ago called The Best Monsters in Film. That was the name of the song. But I've always thought in my mind, I have this sort of uh, cast of, 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 of movie creatures that have always been genuinely terrifying to me. And strangely, they're all, uh, maybe I could come up with one or two that aren't, but they're mostly women. <laughs> they're mostly like very spooky looking women. Um, the first one for me is The Exorcist, Reagan from The Exorcist. If you've seen that, you know what I'm talking about. Another one is Zelda from Pet Cemetery, also a Stephen King adaptation. But in the film version, the original film version, I, I know they remade it recently, which I didn't fucking see. But in the original film version, Zelda, who's the, the wife's sister. Um, I forget what her condition is, but she's sort of bedridden and, the, and the, uh, the wife had to take care of her growing up. So that was terrifying, Zelda from Pet Cemetery. Even reading that, which uh, I'm reading Stephen King in sequence now, or uh, the novels anyway, I'm reading in sequence. So eventually I'll get to Pet Cemetery, hopefully. But... Um, um, that fucking terrified me. And then the other one was The Shining was actually adapted into a made-for-TV version. There's the Kubrick film, which most of us have seen. There was also a made-for-TV version. I think it was like three parts, and it was starring the dude from Wings or whatever. But the woman in the bathtub from that film was truly fucking terrifying. And actually, when you read the book, you realize it's much much closer to the adaptation of the book. Um... But that freaked the fuck out of me. Uh, and I, I actually, I told myself I was going to like look it up on YouTube. But if you YouTube the woman in the tub from The Shining, or I bet if you looked up like, you know, bathtub lady, Shining TV version or some shit like that, you'll be able to see the sequence. It's fucking mortifying. Very terrifying. Um, so yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't know where I'm going with that. Oh, I think except to say, I mentioned I was reading Stephen King in sequence, and uh, I, I never bid on stuff on eBay. I always just sort of buy it right now, because I just don't want to... I don't know. Like, eBay is sort of feels antiquated to me, like bidding on stuff. Um, I just want to find the cheapest price right now, pay for it, and know that it's on the way. I don't want to, like, bid on something and wait a couple days and eventually lose out, because usually I do, you know? So anyway, I was uh, bidding on this uh, sort of hardcover... Version and for some reason I'm reading hardcovers lately. I don't know. I'm normally I'm a paperback guy, but for the last like few months I've just been buying and reading hardcovers. But I was trying to buy this hardcover version of The Stand and got uh, outbid at the last fucking second. So um, I felt like that was the cosmos saying move on to other stuff. So I've been sort of going back to Russian literature. 
I read uh, Pushkin, uh, The Queen of Spades. It's a short story, but it was anthologized with some other stuff. I read that, and then I'm so fucking stoked. I, I, I have, uh, we talked about, like, translators recently, and I was talking about uh, this uh, uh, translation couple, Richard Prevere and... I forget her first name, Larissa Voloskonsky or something like that, but they're a, a married couple. They've been basically translating everything they can get their hands on uh, from, from from Russian into English lately. And I had a hardcover copy of their... Uh, I, I have a copy of their translation of House of... Uh, no, or I should say Notes from a Dead House. Normally it's called House of the Dead, but uh, they've retranslated the title. It's uh, Notes from a Dead House from Dostoevsky coming in the mail. But in the meantime, I have uh, a hardback copy of their translation of The Double and The Gambler. And I read those, I've read The Double before, I've read The Gambler before. I think The Gambler was actually the first thing I ever read on an e-reader. Um, my mom got me this Sony e-reader about like eight years ago. And so I was just like looking for stuff in the public domain and I think The Gambler was the first thing I read on there. But um, I think as recently as last, not this last Christmas, but the Christmas before that, I was traveling with a collection of Dostoevsky's, like the great short works of Dostoevsky. And I remember I read The Double and The Gambler there. And then when I was flying back, I had already finished it, but I had nothing else to read. So I reread The Double. And as I'm reading it again now, The Double is so cool because it's actually my favorite story by Dostoevsky. And I and in, in other episodes I've talked about the weirdness of seeing a movie like Seven Samurai and then Throne of Blood, which comes afterwards, and yet it feels like a younger film. You know, The Gambler was written twenty years after The Double. You know, both sort of short novellas, or it's weird with older fiction. Even novellas are called novels, but um, I think we would call them novellas by today's standards. But the double precedes the gambler by about 20 years, and yet the double feels so much more mature to me. And I know I'm reading these things in translation, so what the fuck do I really know? But I've always felt that way. No matter what translation of these works that I read, that's how I feel. Um, interestingly, I, di- I know I talked about the gambler in, an- in another episode recently, because I was holding it up as an example um, of something that was written in a very short amount of time. And I think at that time I thought maybe it was like four or six weeks, or even maybe as long as two months. But as I'm rereading the introduction um, to this translation of those works, it was written in two weeks, and it was done by dictation, and he and Dostoevsky ended up marrying the woman who he dictated the work to. So that's fucking crazy. But the double is exceptional. You know, I would say of everything I've read so far from Dostoevsky, maybe even more than Crime and Punishment, it's my absolute favorite story. Um... Gogol is one of those Russian authors that you, I don't know, it's, I, it doesn't feel like a go-to to me. I think people mostly read like Dostoevsky or, or probably Tolstoy as well. But when you actually read Gogol, the short works of Gogol, but also you know the first half of Dead Souls, those are some pretty heavy hitters. I mean, like other authors, it just sort of jumps off the page. And there's something about there's something about the double, which is so Gogolian, um, and yet so fucking great. And uh, it's just exceptional. I think as I've read it more, I actually think, I can't really think of another example that is probably a better description of what mania, or, or, of a protagonist with mania. And it's not, you know, they didn't have that phrase back then and it wasn't thought of the way that we do now. But the when I read it now, it's clearly someone who's manic. And it's, 
it's it's just an incredible story. So if you haven't read the Double by Dostoevsky, do it. Um, anyway, I'll probably have a thousand more thoughts about it when I when I finish rereading it again. But um, for now, I see we're out of time. <clears throat> so let's do this. Um, let's end it here. Uh, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, you can on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Uh, take a minute, rate and review us. Give us five stars. Type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast and why others will also. And if you can think of one person in your life who you think would like it, send them your favorite episode. Episode 72 in the bag, folks. I'm really stoked that we're on the door of 75. That, to me, feels uh, like another milestone. So I'm glad we're almost there. Thanks for listening every week. Thanks for tuning in. Stay tuned. Stay subscribed. I want you to cross that 100-episode finish mark with us. Or maybe I should say benchmark. Maybe it won't be a finish... uh, Uh, A finish line, rather. Maybe it won't be a finish line, but just another benchmark. So stick around. Uh, Until then, uh, until the next episode, (laughs) thank you for listening. Thank you for your time. And ciao for now.